Hey there, and welcome to What Happens Next with Ben and Philip. My name is Ben. My name is Philip. Mate, I wanted to talk to you this week about something that has me bamboozled, and he's a recent subject of our previous conversation. I'm talking Elon Musk. Oh, yes. We did do a, uh, a chat about his uh, Tesla. Exactly, exactly. Was it the sort of Musk v. Branson who is the more brilliant entrepreneur? Exactly. We were parking personality by the side and asking the question, which one is doing more for the world and not just for ego? And we kind of landed on Mr. EM, the Elon Musk. But here's a question that someone asked me the other day, and it was a really good question, and I can't think of an answer beyond the obvious. And the question is this. Why the hell is Elon Musk and other entrepreneurs like him, and I guess NASA as well, considering the prospect of trying to colonize and terraform the most inhospitable planet possible, Mars, estimated to cost $500 billion per person. So, the cost of that- Say that again. It's something like $500 billion or $5 billion. It's something in the billions per person it will cost- to colonize Mars. So, there isn't actually an economy of scale at this stage. So, very fucking far from it. Yeah. Whatever the opposite of that economies of scale is. Exactly. I would say. So, Musk himself has come out and said that we need to try and get that figure down. No shit, Sherlock. But here's the thing. But how? We agree that Musk is a fantastic uh, entrepreneur in the way that he has aspirations beyond profit and is doing things to push forward humanity, and in some respects, he's actually doing the job that NASA once did, which is great. Yeah. But if you look at the cost and the effort and the time that it would take to terraform and colonize Mars, couldn't that same amount of money be spent much more efficiently with much more of an obvious outcome by simply either fixing the Earth once we screw it up by 2040 or- at this end, prevent terrible situation happening that the Earth is uninhabitable in 2040. Absolutely. It's a nice idea and it's nice to make an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie about it, but it'll never happen and it's a waste of money and it's like some little science nerd sort of wet dream and it's just silly. I would have thought a fraction of the money being spent on this could be spent, I don't know, giving people in Africa fresh drinking water or... Whatever, like, you know, it's just like if you were running a charity or a world vision or something and you saw the amounts of money that people were spending on this folly, which is nothing more than some sort of ego folly because it's there, let's try and do it. Sure, I mean, you could say, oh, if we said that about going to the moon, we wouldn't have satellite communication, all this sort of stuff. Sure, but I mean, Mars is, it takes you, what, a year to get there? Possibly one, two years. It's a long time. Yeah, it takes you two years to get there and then if Matt Damon is not around, who's going to be there to help us grow food? You know, we've all seen the movie and that might not be a realistic depiction of what it could be like, but, I mean, seriously, what are we doing? Is it just this whole, I mean, this podcast is called What's Next or What Happens Next, but it's almost like, all right, yeah, this world's pretty fucked. Yeah, sorry, we've kind of like thrashed it. It's sort of coming towards the end of its life and rather than trying to fix it up and get a few spare parts or find a more efficient way of running this motor, let's just find a new one and just, you know, we'll just up and leave to the next one. It's just very sort of, I mean, they would argue that it's very long-sighted 
and that it's very, you know, it's all futuristic and this kind of thing. But it's more, it's actually quite sort of nearsighted. It's almost like, oh, I don't know, is it? It's not sort of the wood for the trees, but it's almost like, well, look around you and look what you could be putting your resources into making life better here. You know, is this really necessary? Oh, it's, I don't know. I am sort of torn between, oh, wow, wouldn't that be amazing if we could do it? But it's like, okay, if I won Powerball, wouldn't it be amazing if I could buy three holiday houses around the world? But, you know, I'm not going to win Powerball, so I'll just be happy fixing up my house that I've got here at home. You know what I mean? Okay, let's unpack that. Starting with, I just saw First Man recently, which documents Neil Armstrong's involvement in landing on the moon. And that was a great depiction of the hardship and the ostensible impossibility of that mission. Like today in 2019, that would never happen that people would take that risk. Big balls on those guys. Absolutely. Big balls, but also we live in a more litigious environment that they wouldn't just gamble in the same way. There was more of the cowboy attitude and a hangover from the days of testing those very fast planes in the military, which permeated the culture at NASA, which now in a zero-risk environment wouldn't happen. But what it did do- They were just glorified jet pilots with big balls, basically. Exactly. Like the film The Right Stuff. And now we're in an era of a scientific-driven medium where no risk is tolerated at all, which you could argue may actually be a hindrance on innovation. Nonetheless, the film and real life is a good testament to the idea that if you do something that seems impossible, like climbing Everest, like what's the point? But if you do something that seems impossible, it can inspire people to realise that they're not limited as much as they think they are. So that's the benefit of doing something as insane as putting a sports car in a rocket with a mannequin astronaut in the driver's seat of his Tesla sports car in the head of the rocket and sending it to Mars. It's like, oh, my God, despite the world being so shit at the time, he's done something that is literally beyond this world. And by putting a team of 20 scientists to the task of putting a convertible on a rocket and flying into space, that seems like just a big publicity stunt. My dick's bigger than yours, Bransom sort of folly. But there might be a, a happy byproduct of that, which is like, oh, by doing that, our guys develop this new rocket thing that is 80% more efficient than some other rocket. And when we need a rocket to blast a satellite into space, I mean, we can use this new technology or something. You know, you're right. Often that does create these happy sort of alternative technologies and things like that, which clearly, if we hadn't set ourselves the challenge of getting to the moon. Exactly. So you've got yeah. a combination of technological byproducts, such as developing the technology to create satellite networks, which have created mobile phone networks, which created ultimately the iPhone and personal computers in our hip pocket. And then you also have the psychological benefit of a particular nation, in this case, the US, feeling a sense of power, for better or worse, in that they beat Russia to that specific task of landing on the moon. And therefore, that pretty much shaped international politics between the late 60s to now. So, that's an indirect political benefit. I think what's really weird about the whole Elon Musk Mars trip is the implied oxymoron on the situation. And by that, I mean this. With Tesla, Musk is trying and succeeding, I think, in driving people away from fossil fuel-driven cars. Brilliant. To sustainable, accessible transport. And the idea behind that would be that ultimately it would lend us – if that leads us to – better battery technology and to solar power and wind power 
that then creates electricity that drives these batteries, these cars, that will then slow down the degradation of our planet and save our planet. But then on the other hand, Mars is almost his backup plan. It's like, if I can't do enough to save the planet with these solar or electrical innovations in the short term, this is my second passport, my last sort of swing for the fences solution if it goes pear-shaped. So being charitable towards him, towards Elon Musk. Yeah, he's actually been bet both ways. Yeah. And to be fair, if you think about it, if he was just doing one and not the other, so if he was just doing the Mars without the electric car, you'd say, this is a folly. But because he's concurrently doing the electric cars in which he's been criticised ruthlessly by the automobile industry, which is the backbone of American culture and economy, by the fossil fuel industry, which again is the backbone of the Middle East and American economy. He is doing something which is basically robbing them of an economy by harnessing free power. And the cars are good. The cars are actually accelerating faster than Lamborghinis They're amazing. Yeah, the cars are amazing. They get upgrades. He's not making these big, ugly, clunky, ridiculous-looking things. They're actually cool cars. We're a long way past the Prius. Yeah. Where we've got cars that actually look like Lamborghinis, accelerate faster than Lamborghinis. And just recently, about a year ago or so, he released a software update, much like a an iOS or Android update to your operating system on your phone, which increased the speed of the car by like 8%. So through a computer. Through a software update. So it's like getting your V8 chipped at some sort of <laughs> auto repair shop. Or in my case, getting my electric oh, bike tweaked so it can actually go above yeah. 22 kilometers an hour. So get that expensive German microchip for the engine. Exactly. Yeah. In that cool. case, I do cool. think it is a bit crazy that he or other aspirational entrepreneurs aren't spending more money mm. in the present. But in his case, I think it's defensible, unlike Branson, because at least Musk is trying things here as well. Like in Australia, for example, he did a dare or a bet with one of our local state governments to solve their electrical needs because their power grid crashed. And basically said, I will set up in 30 days a battery electrical solution to power your entire state. And if I don't do it in time, it's all free. And he held his word and did it Hmm. and solved a statewide crisis. So he's doing stuff for his Branson, as we've discussed before, has other positive attributes and probably is more focused on things like trying to encourage equality and that sort of social change. Mm. But when he was trying to look at flying us to the space as tourists, it wasn't to try and colonize a planet to sustain human existence. It was essentially a very expensive version of the, is it the QE2? And most of what you heard about it was which is the latest celebrity to have signed up to be on the shortlist. And we've talked about this before on this podcast, as our listeners would be aware, but Branson is he's a salesman and he's not he's not particularly an innovator in the true sense of the word. He sure he's very good at what he does. I'm, I'm not He's being, a marketer. He's a marketer. He's yeah, he's a marketer, salesman. He knows how to get free press. And he knows that he get paid for press. But, yeah, sure, he did build a – his wasn't so much a rocket, was it? It was a plane that could fly so high as to get into an orbit? Yeah, I think his plane gets to that point where it technically, scientifically is space. Yeah. In that you probably start floating around inside it, but you're still circling the Earth on the orbit of the Earth. It gets – yeah, it sort of gets up to that sort of lowest of that next level. 
Um, which, you know, is an achievement. That's amazing. But one of them did crash and blow up and that's probably set him back for a little ways. But I wonder if Leonardo is going to ask for his uh I wonder if those deposits, refund. Those deposits were refundable. Ooh. Have to read the fine print on that one. What's Leo. the Virgin deal with Virgin Airlines? You can't cancel within 24 hours? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if Leo paid the extra for the window seat or the exit row. No, he paid for himself in the middle with models on either side. Yeah. He paid for uh, a row uh, of three. Uh, Eight models from Victoria's Secret. That's right. Well, they are, are angels, right? Aren't they just basically angels who fell to Earth and now they're being returned oh. into the orbit? Yeah. Well said, Benny. Who else was on that trip? Do we know? Oh, it was people like Mark Cuban, wasn't it? Lots of I was going to say a few owners of like too American much money. sports teams and things, yeah. Did you hear recently, speaking of multi-millionaires, that New Zealand has closed the loop hole? No. That allowed international billionaires to buy property? Oh, like the Kim.coms of this world? Yeah. So, I think, is it- We've talked about Peter Thiel before. Yeah. Who's the guy? You have to be a New Zealand citizen or you have to spend- $1.5 million was a threshold before to invest in the country through real estate Mm. or business. In Australia, it's about 1 or 1.1. And that artificially was inflating the market. Recently, their sensational, personal opinion, their sensational PM, Prime Minister- close that loophole because it just felt like Australia was artificially increasing the property values. You're saying the New Zealand Prime Minister is sensational? Yeah. As in good or she's a sensationalist? No, 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 she's good. Like She seems to be everything that they wanted in a Prime Minister and everything that it could be argued many countries want in a leader Mm. seems to be candid, intelligent, I did see her on Colbert. She was good. Yeah, she's great at Colbert. Mm. Hold her own, diplomatic. Mm. Um, she made the obligatory flight of the Concorde small talk. Exactly. <laughs> but, for example, there are multi-millionaires from Silicon Valley who have bought land and built these hardcore bunkers because they're literally on the other side of the world in New Zealand. And this is all predicated on the idea of the economy crashing or the environment going upside down. And she's just said, you know what, let's look after ourselves. Now, not in that nationalistic sense that the Americans have been accused of. She just said- We've got laws here that benefit a tiny minority and not the majority of the country, and it just seems unreasonable that you can buy a passport. So, if you want to live here and contribute to the economy and the social life and put down roots with that, family- or- Compare that to Trump. Is that a little bit nationalistic? Or- no. I think the difference is is that- She's well, hot. No. What <laughs> I think the difference would be is that- they're a tiny country and you could argue that they're being exploited oh, yeah. by multi-millionaires, which is the opposite of America. Oh, geez, bro. I don't, I don't regret the Kiwis anything. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is that good? Wait, I don't think. You know what that is? It's not black. Oh, so you're going to cut that out. You're going to cut that out. It's key, it, it, if, keep, if, that, keep that in. What's, keep what's in. the accent equivalent of blackface? What the politically incorrect appropriation of well, bad accents? Look, I mean, it's late night. We are basically having a late night talk show here. And if, if I was Colbert and you were, if you were Fly the Concords, why wouldn't I Seth bust Myers? out? Yeah, you'd bust out a little attempt at a Kiwi accent. Oh, yeah. And you go, oh, oh yeah. stay in the, or if you're Australian, you go, stay in the crows, mate. Oh, yeah, sure. Binny likes that. Yeah. Binny likes a bit of an Australian, New Zealand accent. Hey, bro. Oh, that's South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my accents start Diplo- off- Diplomatic immunity. Yeah. Most of my accents start off as something and very quickly become Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. No matter how I, I was going to say, they become like some a movie villain. Yeah. Speaking of Colbert, did you- When he had Hugh Jackman on? No. I could have sworn you did. Hugh Jackman, you know, well-known Australian actor. He's on Colbert selling his latest film, 
which is about a American politician. Gary Hart. Okay, thank you. Based on a true story or not? Yeah, based on a true story, that was one of the most famous or first prominent sex scandals. Political sex scandals. Okay. Pre-Clinton. Anyway, I'm watching Jackman on Colbert. And look, I don't have anything particularly against Jackman. I find him a little bit- He plays the game. And I think that's probably why he has had the career he has had because he has been prepared to kiss the ass that needs kissing in Hollywood. And, I mean, if you look at his career, it's a it's an interesting career, isn't it? He has had a foot in both camps. He's loved and revered over there, which is for a guy, if you put all these movies down on paper and, and you looked at the box office of them, I'm guessing the Wolverine ones would outstrip the others 10 to 1 probably. They would. But as you say, his diversity is remarkable. I mean, to play one of the most, if not the most, modern iconic superhero besides Batman. Really? Are they that good, those movies? I've never seen them. Well, he has been associated with that character, Wolverine, for 17 years, which is remarkable. I think that makes him one of the longest serving actors to represent a particular character. Like, people see him as Wolverine, whereas Superman, there have been, you know, five Supermans over the last right. four decades. So, for him to associate I fi- himself I with two decades. The Wolverine films are like the Fast and the Furious. I just, I'm just amazed that they made one, let alone seven or whatever they did. I think the difference with him is that the character is so beloved. He's loved in spite of the films, not because of them. Of all the films that Wolverine starred in, some of the X-Men films are very, very good. Like X-Men 2 is fantastic and he's got a big role in that. But also the last two films were particularly good. The Wolverine was pretty good. Logan, which was his swan song based on a comic. Was that the prequel? No. No, it was the opposite. It was basically the old version of him set in the not too distant future. He's like sort of the washed up Wolverine. Yeah, just older. His powers of regeneration are fading. He's just finally age is catching up with him and he doesn't heal as fast. And that film was made by a revered filmmaker. It was faithful to the comic books. Uh, It was loaded with pathos. It was a Fantastic farewell, both in real life and to the character on screen. To do that and then also be- Did it make money? Made a lot of money. And to do that and also be a superstar singer and dancer on Broadway and in movies, that is a bizarre juxtaposition of character traits. Like Most people do one or the other. To go from being this masculine, animal-like icon on one side, ripped with muscles and veins popping out and a full body transformation where he has to eat like five chicken breasts a day. I agree with all that, but I find him borderline unwatchable on screen. I I cringe when I see him. I would say this. I would say he works- I like him as a person or a personality, but I think his success is that he does one character very well, which is Wolverine, very well, and- in those whole song and dance performance things where, you know, it's not naturalistic. So, you don't have to pick apart the nuance of a performance because- I'm not begrudging his talent. I'm no, no, what I'm saying talent. is that they're not great judges of the nuances of acting. Yeah. It's performance. Yeah. I wouldn't call it like Sean Penn acting where you convey through gritted teeth and a, a look. He conveys through song and dance. I think his most recent film was that one based on the old circus. Yes. Called Name Escapes Me. Yeah. But when I've seen him in other roles- The greatest show on earth. Crusher, yeah. When I see him in other roles, I don't find him as convincing in that role 
and I don't think he has the same capacity to vary his accent like other actors do. Having said that, the trailer where he plays Gary Hart, this disgraced politician, apparently he's really good and he looks okay in the trailer and sounds okay. So, we'll see. But what was the thing that he said in the interview that uh, got you back up? What was the catalyst it for didn't, this it didn't so much. It didn't so much get my back up, but I was watching this interview with Colbert. He did something at the start of the interview where he ran off into the audience and hugged a, a radio host from Australia who just happened by chance to be sitting in the very front row right in front of where Colbert and Jackman were sitting and pretended that that was all just happy circumstance. And then there was a bit of byplay about that. And I put that to one side, but then he told his obligatory how much I love my wife story, which if you've followed Jackman's career is a common thread that runs through every single interview he's ever conducted in his life. What that he has a limited number of stories that he repeats. Not only that, but he would talk about his wife, Deb. I reckon he would, in any interview he's ever done, he would say the word Deb 12 times minimum, which is fine. He's happily married. That's great. Good on him. I've never seen a celebrity talk about how great their wife was at any given opportunity, which is basically every press opportunity that he has ever had promoting anything. That's fine. Good on him. Got nothing against him for that per se. But he then proceeded to tell a story. Oh, Deb, so great. Oh, Deb, you know. And Colbert then has to do the obligatory. Oh, you know, she was she's like a famous actress in her own right. A lot of people don't know that. It's like, well, yeah, when I first met her, I was a nobody, 15 years younger than her, whatever. Maybe not that young. Maybe 10 years younger than her. She was actually a famous actress herself. Then he tells this, this story about how he was having dinner with her. They met on the set of his first ever TV show. Mick Jagger supposedly was outside in a car with one of her friends who is an unnamed, very famous person. And this friend calls her from the car and says, come party with us. I've got Mick Jagger here in the car. And she says, no, I'm t- you can tell Mick Jagger I'm having dinner with Hugh Jackman. So, I watched this last week and I thought, if I haven't heard that before, that's a bullshit story. Like, that's just made up. I was like, he must have told that before. So, I Googled the words curiously the next day in a quiet moment, Hugh Jackman, Mick Jagger. And that brought up several Google search pages of Hugh Jackman in previous interviews telling the exact same story, albeit with slight details, changed. I trace this back to 2006 was the first time that he told this story. This is time very well spent. Well, it's all research for this podcast. It's tax deductible. He can't deduct. <laughs> like a tax deduction depends on actually making money. Yeah. We make zero money from We this. make money from this. So, a deduction of zero on zero is zero. But go on. Yeah. So, this leads me into my my rant of the night, which is lazy journalism. So, sure enough, one of the links that comes up in the Google search is the latest article in the City Morning Herald, which says, Hugh Jackman tells how he knew he'd won his wife's heart when she refused a date with Mick Jagger. So, this is reported as, as fresh news because he told it on Colbert last night. A simple Google search, as I revealed, dear listeners, of the words Hugh Jackman, Mick Jagger, four words, two names, revealed a litany, nonetheless. A litany. Of Jackman telling this lazy talk show, GQ interview, any interview he's ever done. He has dropped this anecdote in there and the lazy journalism of the City Morning Herald has revealed, rather than saying, telling a story he has told many times before, in brackets, this guy's a phony, not just saying, just saying, plays the game, plays the machine. He's telling that to an international audience, an audience of I don't know how many people watch the Colbert in 
America, 10 million people. I don't know. Does he think that no one's heard that before? Like, he must know that he's told that story so many times. I think he knows that he's told it before and he, and he trusts that most people haven't heard that story before and he, and he trusts it, that most journalists won't research. And he knows it goes down well. People like it and he goes, oh, Mick Jagger. Oh, wow, that's a cool, that's a cute story. Granted, it's a good story. It's a good story the first time I heard it, good story than maybe the first three or four times I heard it, not the first 15 times I heard it over an 18-year period. Sorry, 12-year period. I don't want to stroke your ego or my ego, but this is the reality. I worked out about five years ago that – Nobody, nobody, including, unfortunately, many journalists, researchers. So, for example, I've been in situations where people ask questions that they get an answer to with a simple Google search on their phone. Now, I don't expect the person in a room in a meeting in front of me to Google in front of me. That's obviously impolite. If we can be two guys with a glass of wine and a beer doing a cursory five-second Google on something like that, and verifying it or realizing it's BS on the spot. Coming back to your overarching point, which isn't necessarily a critique of the hue, but actually of journalism. Why can't journalists, no matter how busy they are or how underpaid they are, and they are underpaid and they are busy, but to me, I don't call Google a case of working through some impossible dense archives. It's something I can do on my smartphone. But- but but on, on the that, toilet. But on that point, rather than breathlessly report in three paragraphs how Hugh Jackman told some amazing anecdote on Colbert, a simple Google search would have revealed that he's told this story in no less than fifteen interviews in the last six years. That would have been a much more interesting story. It's like Hugh Jackman recycles same shtick for every bloody interview he ever does. That's a great story. And but Hugh Jackman doesn't sponsor the Daily Telegraph. He doesn't advertise in it. Like, why not call it out for what it is? That's a much more interesting thing. I'll be like, well, that's pretty fucking funny. And that would go viral. That would go like that sort of story would get a lot more attention than just recycling some hash. You know, I don't know. I think you're right. You're absolutely right because that story would go more viral than a story about this being new news when it clearly isn't. It's not news. But isn't this the case that if you want to critique modern journalism, it's soft cock journalism where you only tell feel-good stories because feel-good stories clickbait? Having said that, let me say this, is that if you had a sensational gossipy story like you're mentioning, which is- My story would be clickbait deluxe. Totally. So, it might not be feel good, but it's clickbait and plenty of salacious tales are perfect clickbait. I don't know. It's funny. I think there are certain actors in Australia, the UK and the US, almost Teflon in relay the way that they're actually- that's, I, think that's, I think that is why he annoys me. It's yeah. because, sure, he's talented, but I've never seen one of his- I've never seen one of his movies. Never. You've never seen- uh, no, Miz. No, never seen. So you've just criticised. Yes, yeah, because watching him makes me cringe. I just, I just can't watch him. Whoa, 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 whoa! whoa. I, haven't even seen, I haven't even seen Erskineville Kings. You've never seen his breakout film. You've never seen his first American film playing Wolverine. You haven't seen any X Men film. I haven't. I've seen bits of that one with Hal Berry, but only because there's that scene with Hal Berry in it with John Travolta, where she's topless for a moment. Yeah, but that the- famous scene in Swordfish, which is Swordfish, one million dollars. For five seconds to be topless, I was which gonna, was very controversial. I was going to say Rumblefish, but that was a Nick Cage movie. No, no. From Francis Swordfish was Swordfish, much, much yeah. more mainstream yeah. and not as sophisticated. So, in the tradition of this podcast, I am talking out my ass, but it's just my opinion. Just another ill-informed opinion. That's it. <laughs> the latest of many. Grumpy old men. I was 
listening to a stand-up comedian, uh, an ex-Daily Show reporter whose name escapes me, Hassan Minaj, I think it is. I've totally butchered his name, but he has this fantastic show on the Patriot Act. Brother of Nikki? No. He did the US Correspondence White House dinner. Very, very talented. Oh, yeah. 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 Comedian. And did this great stand-up piece on Netflix called Homecoming King, I think. Very smart comedian, very articulate, and brings a very interesting non-white perspective to US politics and his upbringing as a first-gen American. He was talking about news recently, and he really raked the news organizations over the coals in his correspondence address. And I'm in this torn situation where the US, mainly US media, have had this insult of fake news lobbed at them like a grenade relentlessly for the last two years. But they've also been criticised because they haven't been calling to account people who may lie, be it politicians or others. They use words like misrepresent and whatever. And so he was actually being quite ruthless. He was calling them fake news for the opposite reasons that people like Donald Trump had called them fake news. He was saying, you guys get what you deserve. You reap what you sow. Yeah. Is that you haven't been applying the ethics of journalism. You've been chasing clickbait. You've been too nervous of offending an actor in an interview, for example, yep. or offending a politician who is ostensibly gregarious and you want to try and appease or you're fixated by. And therefore, you are now reaping what you sow. You're being called fake news because you haven't been decisive in or courageous in actually reporting the news yeah. as it is. That felt really harsh to hear that when I first heard it, but now I think upon it on reflection. I think he's actually right in that it is too harsh, I think, for the modern media to call the fake news. But there is something to be said for the fact that maybe there is some degree of culpability. I'm not sure if it's 5%, 50%, but maybe they haven't held up their side of the bargain in terms of being impartial reporters of the news and maintained an ethics to tell the truth in spite of lack of clicks for online. Yep. That has led us to where we are. Again, it's not their fault, but maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure, but maybe they're 5 10 15% responsible for where we are. I think that's right. I mean, you and I were talking earlier tonight about a headline on the City Morning Herald this week about why you need to wash those pre-washed salad greens you buy from the supermarket. I mean, that's that was sort of right underneath an article maybe about the slaying of the journalist in Turkey, the Saudi journal. And then it was like, next article. That's where we're at these days. And um, on that note, I might go and um, I've got some salad greens to wash because I thought they were pre-washed, but apparently they're not. So right. I'll help you smash an avocado. I could be, could be at it for a while. Until next time, my friend, peace out. Stick a bow in it.